The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Carrie Blakinger. She is a staff writer at The Marshall Project, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning nonpartisan nonprofit news organization that seeks to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. Before joining the Marshall Project, Ms. Blakinger covered criminal justice for the Houston Chronicle for three years. She was a staff reporter for the New York Daily News, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post Magazine, Vice, Salon, and NBC News. Most notably, she is the Marshall Project's first formerly incarcerated reporter, and she exposes abuses in the prison system and reflects on her own experience of incarceration. Ms. Blakinger's recent articles on prison food and dentures grabbed my attention, and I thought she could give us some behind-the-scenes knowledge of what prisoners eat and don't eat and how that impacts their health, especially now in light of COVID-19 threats. She is currently working on a memoir to be published with St. Martin's Press, and she is a graduate of Cornell University. Welcome, Carrie. It's great to have you with me. Thanks for having me. Well, do you want to just start out and say a little bit about your incarceration, just so people are probably wondering, length of time spent behind bars, what was your charge? Yeah, sure. So I served 21 months in New York State prisons for a drug charge for heroin. I'd been addicted to heroin off and on for about nine years, I think, at that point. And I was arrested in 2010, got out in 2012, and, you know, after that worked on getting my life together, and I ended up in journalism. So 21 months behind bars. Tell me what that first transition was like for you, going from a free-living person to someone who was living essentially in a cage. You know, it wasn't quite as immediately jarring as you might think, um, which I think was partly because I came in really high. Like, I, I was on a lot of drugs, and the first few days are kind of foggy. But also, I think that some of the ways in which jails are really disorienting don't hit you right away. It's not the being given an orange jumpsuit and told that you have two of these and this is all your clothes. Like, it's more the, I don't know, not having a clock on the cell block and sometimes the officers would walk by and just lie to you about the time for no reason and that's something you don't pick up on it's these sort of little disorienting things so I think that it actually wasn't as immediately shocking as you would think Hmm. that sort of set in more over time yeah no clocks yeah yeah the jail I was in did not have clocks in the cell block They had a microwave that was shared between several cell blocks, which is a luxury. Most of the jails and prisons that I'm familiar with don't have them available broadly anyways. But we had a microwave that we could share between some different cell blocks. So you would get it for a few hours a day and, you know, that's the 
also what time, and you'd use that to tell time until they took it away, and then you'd rely on the TV. We got like five channels, and you knew what the schedule was, so you know, oh, Charmed is on, so it must be this time. Oh, Law and Order is on, but they haven't found the bad guy yet, so it's probably this time. And that was that's sort of how you tell time. Hmm. So did you have a window? I did. In New York, they're required to in county jail. So we had to stand on the bunk to look out the window. It's a long horizontal strip at the top of the cell, but you can't see out from when you're standing on the ground, and you're not allowed to stand on your bunk. So you'd always get yelled at for looking out the window. But the windows did exist. They were there. I was just thinking them in terms of some sort of orientation device, too. I mean, I think that that in itself, like not being able to see outside, is just another form of punishment. Yeah, and that can be disorienting. The other thing that can be really disorienting is lighting. Because some jails leave the lights on all the time, only partially dim them, or they come by and like flash their flashlights in your face every hour or whatever all night for count. So the, the lighting situation, regardless of what the window situation is, can also be pretty disorienting. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned you had access to a microwave oven. What did you cook in it? So in addition to the food that you get served or the alleged food, I'm not sure it entirely qualifies as food, one of the things that people in jail and prisons rely on a lot is commissary which is not health food ever. In jail, it was a lot of, like, ramen noodles and Doritos and candy bars. You know, just the the practicality of, like, you can't order cucumbers on commissary because you don't really have a place to keep them anyways. And, you know, healthy food is just more expensive and typically more logistically challenging to store, use, cook. So you're left with a lot of ramen noodles and instant coffee. Those are probably the two main things that you use the microwave for. But there's also this whole crazy little subset of jailhouse cooking recipes that are, that sound terrible, but some of them are actually pretty good. I mean, within the context of jail, I'm sure if I tried them now, I think they were terrible. So that was another thing we used the microwave for, making things like jailhouse burritos, which is actually just ramen noodles and Doritos crushed up, and you crush them all up, you put them in the bag, you put in some, like, seaweed or whatever kind of food you get, if you eat meat, you put in some sausage, you can usually get sausage on commissary, and then you heat up water in the microwave, and you pour that in the bag, and then you sort of mold the bag into, like, a burrito-ish shape, and you let it congeal, and it looks like brains, but it's not terrible, it's obviously terrible for you, but... It doesn't taste as bad as it sounds like it would. There's, there's actually, if you want to get lost in a YouTube rabbit hole, there's some YouTube channels run by people who've done time, like Jessica Kent. She's pretty fun to watch, and she has a lot of things on jailhouse cooking. Well, I just want to give our listeners a link to the excellent Marshall Project. So it's simply www.marshallproject.org. And I'll provide a link to that and a link to your website there and all of the stories that you've written. They are excellent. They are hard to stop reading. You really are an excellent writer. And I so appreciate getting a glimpse of the inside. Now, one of the stories that you did 
Well, you did two stories that really relate to the Food Sleuth Radio theme. One has to do with, ooh, is that what you're eating? And there are pictures of food, and prisoners have sent pictures of what the food is that they're getting. And I guess during this COVID-19 lockdown time, the food has gotten even worse. And so my question is, what's going on with regard to food during this time? How does that compare to before COVID? And I'm a little confused about cell phone access, because it seems in some of the stories that I've read, cell phones are contraband, you can be put in solitary confinement for having one. And yet, how are we getting these pictures out? Ah, so two great and separate questions. So I will start with the food situation. So in Texas prisons, and that's what this story was about, but similar things are true in many other prison systems, though the details kind of vary. But in Texas prisons, when there's a lockdown, which is what they did when coronavirus started spreading in the prison system, when there's a lockdown, they give out what they call Johnny Sacks, which are just brown bags, lunches, but it's three times a day. You're getting a cold meal in a brown bag three times a day for one week, five months. You don't really know. It sort of depends how long your particular unit ended up on a COVID lockdown. And those meals arrive at weird hours. They Just because of staffing issues, they, they like to spread out who's doing the feeding on what shift. So, you know, you get breakfast at like 3 a.m. and then you get lunch at like, I think, 10 a.m. And then you get dinner at like whenever it shows up. Could be 3, could be 10, like you have no idea. And the food is famously bad in these Johnny Sacks. Like this has been an ongoing complaint for every lockdown in Texas prison. As you can see from the pictures, there are some, it's not enough food for one. and It's a lot of bread and there's, I don't think there's anything green. Oh, well, unless except the hot dogs, that's kind of green. <laughs> you know, there's no vegetables. Right. Um, there's no fruit. Like, the milk is powdered. One of these pictures is of an alleged sloppy joe, which is two pieces of white bread with something that really looks like, you know, like diarrhea on it. And it looks obviously not good. It looks like there's not enough, and it looks like you would get scurvy if you ate only this for some time. But normally, like in the past, when prisons are on lockdown, they do lockdowns every six months or so for two weeks, just do like a full search of the facility in, in Texas anyways. Many other prison systems do not do that unless there's a specific reason to. And sometimes they would also have lockdowns for other security reasons and escape or some belief there's an uptick in contraband drug use or something like that. But to have prisons, several prisons, dozens of prisons, because we have dozens of prisons in Texas, obviously, all be on lockdown for so long is unusual. So usually when the guys are getting this food, it's for two weeks, it's not for four months. And it's one unit, it's not 50 of them. So during COVID, it's not just the food went back to the bad food that is expected during lockdowns, it went to that for longer and at more units than has happened at all in recent history here anyways. But the difference this time is that, you know, I was finally able to visually demonstrate what this food is like, because for years, there's been these complaints, but they're really 
not provable. You can tell me that your hot dog is green, but obviously if the prison system denies it, that makes it harder to report. In this case, I managed to get sent some pictures of the food. And as you mentioned with the cell phones, like, yes, these are clearly taken by a cell phone. And cell phones are contraband in, I think, every prison system. I don't think there's any prison or jail in the country that allows cell phones. And in many states, it's a felony to have a cell phone, to use a cell phone in prison, to send a prisoner a cell phone. Now, a lot of states don't routinely prosecute them as felonies. They typically respond like they find a guy with a cell phone, they'll take it and put the person in solitary for some length of time. But the interesting thing is that with coronavirus, I think that we're actually seeing that there's a lot more people that are keeping their cell phones because there's always been some amount of cell phones. The guards, you know, the, the officers are one sort of bringing it in. Sometimes it's like prisoner workers. Sometimes, I suppose, civilian employees. Visitors, it's a little more difficult just because they get searched more. So I haven't been aware of them as a, a source of cell phones in prisons, although I'm sure that happens in some cases. But even though there's this constant flow of cell phones in prisons, I think that when there's not a pandemic, guys are probably getting their cells searched a little more thoroughly, more frequently. But now, for very obvious reasons, I think officers are a little more reluctant to very thoroughly search cells. So guys that, you know, might only be able to keep a cell phone for two or three weeks seem to be able to hang on to them for a few months. And, and I'm not just talking about Texas here. Like, this is something I think we're seeing broadly in several prison systems that I don't know if there's an increase in the number of cell phones going in, but people seem to be managing to hold on to them longer now. And I would assume that's in probably because there's fewer, less movement, like less transfer between facilities and less self-searching going on. Anecdotally, I've also heard that the officers are less interested in searching each other coming in right now. Um, right. So it's easier for a corrupt officer to get a cell phone in. But I mean, that's all anecdotal because that's really unprovable. Like I, I, I don't have data on detected crimes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, I will make sure that your article about the prison food is also, we also have a link to that because I think people need to really see how people are being fed. And from a dietitian's perspective, you know, when I drive by a prison, it'll often have the sign that says a rehabilitation center or unit. And this is not how we rehabilitate people, by giving them food that will make them sick. So that was just another reason why I wanted to have you with me on this program. We are halfway, so I just need to take one break. Remind our listeners, if you're just tuning in, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Carrie Blakinger. She is a fantastic reporter with The Marshall Project. She is based in Houston, Texas. She has written extensively about her own experience being incarcerated in upstate New York. Well, let's go back to another article that you wrote, and that had to do with dentures. So there are toothless Texas inmates who are being denied dentures in state prison. There was one gentleman who you wrote about, a man by the name of David Ford, for the better part of four years, he has not really had much in the way of teeth, you explain. 
When he arrived, he had some teeth, but、uh, some of them were pulled. He lost some due to a broken denture. He was in a fight, and now he's getting pureed food in cups. Now, because of your writing, however, Texas is doing something different, and they're making dentures using what is it? It's a, a special printing method to make dentures. So, tell me about this. Yeah. So when I first started covering the prison beat here in Texas, I got a complaint from a guy.、Um, actually, it was a guy on death row saying that he didn't have teeth and, and couldn't get dentures. And I was shocked at that, but I thought maybe that was only true on death row, where I spent time in New York. Like people got dentures if they didn't have teeth, or if they didn't have many teeth, or you know, needed a bunch of teeth pulled, like they got dentures. So it didn't occur to me that. There would be other states that didn't treat it that way, and and Texas is not alone in in its failure to provide dentures. Although exactly what that looks like sort of varies in from you know in certain states. But in any case, I started asking around and asking other people who they knew people on the inside who couldn't get dentures, and then I found the policy and discovered that that was actually the policy was that. For a number of years, it had been you, you couldn't get dentures, even if you had no teeth, unless you were unless you were losing weight and had an unhealthy BMI. And they later changed that and took out the BMI part and said that you only would get dentures if it was deemed medically necessary. But simply eating wasn't medically necessary; like it had to be like something additional beyond that. So basically, nobody would qualify, and you know they were only giving out. In a prison system that had at that point around 140,000 or more prisoners at any given time, they were only giving out 30, 40, 50, 60 dentures a year, which is a small number given that population. And it's an especially small number when you consider that prisoners tend to have more healthcare needs in general, and you know many of them have been using drugs and not taking care of themselves and have come in. With bad teeth to begin with, right? And you know that's clearly that number of dentures is clearly less than you would expect a population that size, that that healthcare and dental care need would actually need. So I spent about a year sort of poking into this and finding out how the policy changed over years and what numbers looked like, and interviewing officials and a couple dozen guys who couldn't get teeth. And you know, then I wrote a story about it. And David Ford was, of course, the sort of face of the story. He was the the person that I focused on, and his story I put at the center of it. And afterwards, the prison system said they were going to reevaluate and figure out how they could do something to get people dentures. And they got him dentures, like the regular molded kind or whatever. And then after that, they decided that they were going to do this in. Bigger scale, and so they got a 3D printer so that they could 3D print dentures at one of the units. Right now, during COVID, that is on pause. I would assume. I think the last I asked, it was on pause. And well, I'm sure right now they're dealing with moving people around for the incoming、uh, hurricane. But before COVID, they had been significantly increasing the number of dentures that they were giving out per year. Because I wrote the story in, I guess, 2018, so 
they had the they had the dentures. They were making dentures this year and last year, and the numbers were looking good. And then I, I don't I don't know how COVID will change that in the long run. Mm. It's so interesting this this whole idea of medically necessary, right? Like having teeth, in my opinion, would be medically necessary in order to eat. And yet when I see the pictures of the food that is being served, you're right. You know, my concern, I had an opportunity to review some jail menus. And our jail, our county jail, is largely housing people who are being detained pre-trial. So the food there was not good in terms of not preventing disease. And in fact, I would say that the food was promoting disease. It was high in sodium. It was high in simple carbohydrates. There were no fruits and vegetables to speak of. And so I wonder then, that's my experience of looking at menus at the county jail in my state, in my county. And I'm wondering, the 21 months that you were incarcerated, were you in both a jail and a prison? Do you want to describe maybe some differences there? Yeah, sure. So I I did start in a jail, which is very typical because jails are usually where people are held until they're sentenced, and then they would go to state prison. Sometimes if it's a short sentence, you might do the whole time in the county jail. It works a little bit differently in the federal system, but in state systems, you start in a county jail and you go to the state prison. So in county jail, those places are set up for, they're not set up to hold people long term, like a few months. But nobody, nobody's doing a 20-year sentence in county jail. Right. And there the food was, I mean, it, you know, it, it was not good. It was better than what you see in those pictures. I mean, it was hot meals for breakfast and, and I guess, lunch. And then dinner was always a sandwich and some canned soup. I was vegetarian, have been vegetarian since I was like 13. And by, in many jails and prisons, it's possible that, but they did not have vegetarian options there, or actually they eliminated them about a week after I got there. When they did have vegetarian options, it was alternating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch and cheese sandwiches for dinner, and that was it. That was the whole vegetarian option. But it was at least vegetarian, which was nice. And then when they eliminated it, I was still, I mean, I hadn't eaten meat in like more than a decade at that point. Like I it was not going to make me feel good to eat it. <laughs> and I probably would have gotten, I, I mean, I you know, felt rather ill. And, you know, I just, I, I figured I could still manage. And I did. And I pretty much lived on like popcorn and jolly rashers from commissary, which was not ideal. But I mean, you know, the food in the first place wasn't that great. But they did have some meals that would have, I mean, they sometimes they'd have something like mac and cheese. So that was the situation in jail. And then when I went to prison, prisons are, are made for people with the expectation that they're going to be there longer. So they tend to have more sort of accommodations in terms of like dietary needs, like in a regular situation, like a non-lockdown situation. So you would go to the mess hall and they would have like one, you know, they'd have one option for your main meal and they'd have one like vegetarian or religious option they would sort of mash it together like it would be something that would meet certain religious groups needs and also be vegetarian and that wasn't 
terrible. It's not great. There were some vegetables in where I was locked up. Like there were vegetables occasionally, sparingly in jail. And there were more commonly some vegetables in prison. And I think Texas prisons get some vegetables normally, just not during lockdown. But the one thing about all this food, like aside from, aside from the fact that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's prison food. It's not great. Obviously, no one expects it to be gourmet, but it's also like, it's sort of a going joke that you gain jail weight. Like when, when people get locked up, they typically gain weight. Part of it's because a lot of people are coming off drugs, so they might have been particularly underweight. But then also there, this is, you know, this is a lot of carbs. It's, it's a lot of, it can be a lot of calories and sort of not particularly nutritious calories. You're not getting like a lot of fruits and vegetables, even if you're getting some. And you're not able to be particularly active because you're often restricted to a pod or a cell block. So those things sort of add up and people tend to gain weight in jail. And, you know, the, the food situation certainly contributes to that because you're almost anywhere getting two to four pieces of white bread with every single meal. Hmm. Carrie, I have a question for you. We just have a couple of minutes left. What do you want our listeners to know about your experience with incarceration and the experience of others that you've interviewed? Well, you know, I think that I think that it's really important to understand that, sure, like, this is just food. And I, I think that people think, oh, well, you know, no, this isn't the Hilton. Nobody gets, like, great treatment in jail or prison, and they don't deserve it. But we need to be mindful of how we treat people who are incarcerated, because 95% of them will one day get out. And if we spend the whole time that they've been incarcerated treating them like animals, locking them in cages and giving people food that most people wouldn't give to their dogs, that has an effect. You know, these are people and they will, you know, that sends a message if you're not willing to treat them as people. And sure, they've done things wrong, but for the greater good, like, one of the considerations needs to be, you know, not just punishment, but rehabilitation. And I say that because otherwise it sort of harms society as a whole because right. people get out and if we treat them like animals the whole time, we will pay for it in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really want to thank you again for taking time to write about these issues. It's critically important that we understand what's going on behind closed doors for our democracy's sake. And I'm really glad that you took a position with the Marshall Project. I've respected this nonprofit for a long time. We've got to close, but I would love for our listeners to know more about your work, more about your stories, so I'll provide links. But in closing, I, of course, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Carrie Blakinger, staff writer at the Marshall Project, a Pulitzer Prize-winning nonpartisan nonprofit news organization that seeks to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. I want to remind everyone that the website is themarshallproject.org. You can find out what lockdown is like. You can look at pictures of food that, or I put food in quotes, what food that's served to human beings looks like. And 
talk about what it's like to be in lockdown during the COVID-19 crisis when you were formerly incarcerated. I think that was another one of your excellent stories. Carrie, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.